It might be a little bit of a foolish exercise, but I want you to imagine that the Lord gave North Suburban Church three choices. Option number one is, he says, for the next year, I will greatly increase your weekly attendance far beyond what it's ever been at North Sub, so that every seat is filled for multiple services, there's little kids running around everywhere. That's option one. Option two is that uh, I will move in the heart of a donor to give a large monetary gift, $5 million, let's say, and all of Restore and Renew will be funded, we'll be able to hire more full-time staff, we will be able to do ministry for years and years down the road as a result of this gift. Or option three, for the next year, every Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, will be present in power during our Sunday morning service. I know we know intellectually what the right answer should be, right? But if you're like me, it's a little bit harder to feel like option three is really what I would choose. But at least in our heads, we know that what we need most of all as a church, more than anything else, is that the Lord's presence would be here with us in power. If he isn't here, if he isn't drawing hearts to himself, if he isn't opening ears to hear the word as it's preached, if he isn't opening eyes to see what he has for us in his word in our life groups, if he isn't convicting people of sin, if he isn't changing hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, then none of what we're doing as a church will matter. Well, it's the importance of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God that will be prominently on display in our text this morning in 2 Kings chapter 2. If you turn there with me to 2 Kings chapter 2, let me give us a little bit of background as we're turning there. This is the last week of our Elijah series. There are six stories about Elijah in First and Second Kings. We're in week six of six. And just a little review of where we've been. Back in 1 Kings 17, Elijah declared there was going to be a drought in the land in the northern kingdom of Israel where he was ministering. And he was used by God to display God's power over the wilderness in foreign lands, and even his power over death. And that led to a showdown, a confrontation in, verse, in uh, chapter 18 of 1 Kings between Yahweh, the Lord, and Baal, the God worshipped by the other nations around. And when Yahweh won that showdown on Mount Carmel, Elijah was hopeful that maybe now the hearts of the people of Israel were going to turn back to the Lord wholeheartedly. But in 1 Kings 19, we saw that he was disappointed Because the wicked queen Jezebel still exercised a great deal of influence and the people's hearts didn't turn back to the Lord. And so he was discouraged and the Lord came to him and strengthened him in part by giving him a task to do. And that task included appointing Elisha to be his successor. And so he went and did that, um, calling Elisha to come follow him and be his successor as a prophet in Israel. In the last two weeks, we've seen a confrontation of King Ahab and we've seen a confrontation of King Ahaziah that led to Ahab's death and then his son Ahaziah's death. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 2, where we are today, where Elijah will be taken up into heaven. The first 15 verses of chapter 2 will be sufficient today to conclude our storyline. Since chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elisha has known that he is going to be the successor, that he's God's choice to succeed Elijah, 
And now today we'll see that transition take place. We'll read the text as we go, and we'll focus in on two quotes by Elisha that I think will help us understand the whole rest of the text. Uh, You can see there's an outline in your bulletin uh, so that it's not too much to write today. Uh, The first quote is a request, and the second quote is a question. So we'll take a look at verses 1 through 10, focusing on the request in verse 9, and then we'll look at verses 11 through 15, focusing on the question that happens in verse 14. All right, so let's dive in. In the first 10 verses, leading up to Elijah's translation into heaven, that's the word we use, that he's translated into heaven, so we save the word ascended for Jesus. Before he was translated into heaven, we see uh, a request by Elisha in verse 9. Listen for that request as I read the first 10 verses. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha, We're on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. A couple of observations here from the first ten verses. First one is this. Those who desire the Lord's presence above all else are stubbornly committed to his calling. You'll see that's there in your bulletin. There'll be five points like this. Those who desire the Lord's presence above all else are stubbornly committed to his calling. I'm thinking about Elisha's stubborn commitment to his calling in this passage. Do you remember his calling back in 1 Kings 19? God told Elijah, go anoint Elisha to be your successor. And Elijah obeyed. He went to Elisha and threw his cloak, the cloak that uh, designates a prophet in Israel. He threw that cloak over Elisha, and Elisha agreed. He uh, left his life in the fields, left his family behind, and he knows since 1 Kings 19 that he is God's choice to succeed Elijah as prophet in Israel. But now we're on the day of the transition itself, and it seems like Elijah is trying to send Elisha away. Do you notice that? Three times in verses 2, 4, and 6. 
He tries to leave him to go to Bethel in verse 2. Tries to leave him to go to Jericho in verse 4. Tries to leave him to go to the Jordan in verse 6. And for some reason, Elisha has a feeling, I suppose, that he knows he has to follow Elijah till the end in order to inherit this office that God has called him to. And so he remains stubbornly committed to following Elijah to the bitter end. Even, in, even though it means it's going to be in an uncomfortable situation going against the stated wishes of his master. So the simple question for us right off the bat today is, what voices do you and I need to push aside in our lives that are keeping us from following through on God's calling in our lives? What are those voices? Sometimes that voice is the voice of the evil one accusing us, isn't it? Telling us we don't have what it takes. We've got to make war against that voice and push it aside. But sometimes, isn't the voice the voice of a well-intentioned fellow believer? Like we see here in this text, the voice that is keeping Elisha from his calling is the voice of Elijah saying, stay here while I go. And Elisha has to say, no, I'm going to keep following you. And so sometimes it just takes a sanctified stubbornness, maybe we should call it, in order to keep God's call foremost in our lives, to keep that as true north and to set our compass by it and to let all other voices in our lives be subordinate to that one voice that called us long ago. A second observation, those who desire the Lord's presence above all are not sidetracked by a quest for glory. They're not sidetracked by a quest for glory. I mean, think about it. Elijah was the man in Israel, even among people who didn't worship the Lord, right? When you start calling down fire from heaven on multiple occasions, people start to treat you differently, right? You walk into the room and everything kind of gets silent. All eyes are on you. Everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath for the next thing you're going to say or do, right? And you, you know how this goes, right? You can imagine being in Elisha's shoes, How hard would it have been not to just let his mind go sometimes to imagining, man, Elijah was the man. Now I'm going to be the man, right? And start thinking about what's it going to be like for people to look at me that way and give me that kind of respect. So you can imagine that temptation that you'd be excited about commanding that sort of respect, that sort of honor. It doesn't help that the sons of the prophets in our text seem to feed the situation a little bit. Sons of the prophets just means junior prophets or prophets in training. They were the seminary students of the day, right? And those of you who are Trinity, uh, at Trinity now or have gone to Trinity in the past, you can picture the scene probably better than anybody else can here. You've got a group of seminary students over here. And then you've got the world-renowned professor who comes walking by over here with his TA right behind him, Right? And the seminary students are huddled up, a little jealous of the TA, right? And later on, they pull the TA aside and they say, Hey, do you know that your professor is retiring soon? Right? And there's two things that are wrapped up in that, aren't there? On one hand, it's a little bit of, Hey, maybe this is your time to shine now. Maybe you're going to take his place. It's a little bit of a pat on the back, puff you up. But there's probably also a little bit of, Let's see what you got once daddy's gone, right? So probably both are going on here as the sons of the prophets say to Elisha, do you know that Elijah is going to be taken from you today? And it would be tempting, I think, in Elisha's shoes to 
start becoming really inwardly focused and focused on self at that moment. Start asking all sorts of self-driven questions, right? Like, man, do I have what it takes when Elijah's gone? They're not sure. Am I sure? How am I going to prove to these people that I'm the man, that I'm different than them, I'm special? What's it going to be like to have that glory, right? All those self-focused questions, we can, we can imagine that Elisha would be thinking, but instead in verses 3 and 5, he shuts it down right away. He shuts down the dynamic. He says, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Don't talk about that. Show some respect. My master is about to, this is his last day on earth. So we're starting to find out what's in Elisha's heart that I'm trying to bring to the forefront today. I think we find it out even more definitively in the request he makes in verse 9. If you go there with me, we'll just camp out there for a moment, that request in verse 9. Elijah has just parted the Jordan, reminiscent of a miracle Moses did so long ago, parting uh, the Red Sea. And they've crossed over. They've crossed over actually to the region on the far side of the Jordan, outside of what was the original promised land, over to the region where Moses actually died. And that's where Elijah asked Elisha, what shall I do for you when I'm taken from you? In verse 9. It's the request we all dream of, right? It's the blank check. Ask for anything you want. What does Elisha ask for? He asks, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Literally, it's a double mouthful of your spirit for me. It's food language. He's asking for two scoops. Um, But there's a lot going on here. So speaking of food, there's a number of layers going on in this cake. So let's just hang out here and just chew on this for a second. Sorry, I couldn't resist the (laughs) wordplay. On one level, the request for a double portion is all the time. Every time you see it in Scripture, it's inheritance language, right? Who gets the double portion in every family in the Bible? The firstborn, right, is supposed to get the double portion. So... Every other time you see double portion in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. It's inheritance. It's not necessarily a double portion of what the father had, right? That's not what it's about. It's about a double portion of what any of the other sons get, right? So at the very least, on one level, what the request is here is that, Elijah, I want to be the new Elijah when you leave. You've trained lots of other prophets along the way, but when you leave, I want to be the one who inherits your office as like the chief prophet, the head of the prophet's in Israel that's training all the other prophets. But on another level, uh, on this side of Jesus at least, aren't we, don't, we, don't our minds go to what Jesus said before he left his disciples and told them, you will do greater things even than I have done? Right? Isn't that the desire of anyone, any mentor who is leaving behind a protege, that that protege would do even more than you did? Or even, maybe even double what you did? And so, Jewish rabbis over the years have actually read this that way, interestingly enough. They've written about this request for a double portion as though Elisha was asking for twice what Elijah had. Like, Elijah, you had this Holy Spirit on you? Give me two scoops of that. And they point to, as evidence, uh, the way the writer of First and Second Kings structures the story. He records eight miracles that Elijah did. By the end of his life. You have any idea how many miracles he records in Elisha's life after this? You'd think 16 is 15. And so you're like, okay, so it breaks down a little bit. 
But then, after Elisha dies, some people are carrying a dead body down the road, and they throw it into a grave. It lands on the bones of Elisha, and what happens to the dead body? It springs to life. You ever read that story? Right? Miracle number 16 for Elisha. And so the rabbis, some of the rabbis through the years have said, it's the writer trying to tell us that he actually did have twice the ministry that Elijah has. In any case, there's multiple levels probably of what's going on. And it's interesting how Elijah responds to the request in verse 10, right? He says, you've asked a hard thing. It's hard to know where Elijah's heart is really in that. In what sense is this really a hard thing? Back in 1 Kings 19, this is exactly what God said he was going to do. Elisha is only asking for what, what God said was already going to happen. And so, um, in that sense, is it really a hard thing? Um, it's possible that this is further evidence of the stubbornness we've seen uh, in Elijah along the way to not really accept God's plan the way it's going to work out, Right? And it's further evidence, maybe, of the stubbornness of Elisha to keep staying true to the calling, um, even in the face of Elijah's reluctance to say, this is going to happen. If that's the case, that's no major surprise for us, right? Elijah was never the hero of this story. In fact, no human is ever really the hero of any storyline in the Bible. God's always been the hero, and we are his vessels that are used by him graciously, despite all of our fumblings and failings. But let's get back to this request, because no matter what different layers are or aren't there in Elisha's request in verse 9, how he words it is critical. He says, May there be a double portion of your spirit on me. When he asks it that way, he's putting the office of prophet Second, to his primary concern, that he wants the spirit that Elijah had. And, of course, we know that the spirit that Elijah had was none other than the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And so, from Elisha's perspective, whatever else was going to be true about the rest of his life and the rest of his ministry, he wanted that spirit, that Holy Spirit, on him. It would have been a noble request to ask for skill for ministry, but he didn't ask for that. He asked for something greater than Elijah's ministry skill. He asked for the God behind Elijah's ministry skill. It's a subtle nuance there, but it actually makes it a categorically different request, I think. So we've gone on a long journey here to show that Elisha was not sidetracked by a quest for glory And that's seen in his request for the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, um, instead of asking for some of the other things he could have asked for. And so the question for us is, what desires in our own lives are competing with our desire for God's presence? What desires in our own lives make it so that the desire for God's presence isn't number one in our hearts? Sometimes they're evil desires that get in the way of our desire for God's presence, right? But sometimes aren't they good desires? that get in the way of our desire for God's presence. And sometimes those good desires are more dangerous because they're more sneaky when they take that top spot. And as I get to know this congregation in Northside, I, I think for many of you, it, it would be in your own hearts the good desires that would compete most with uh, God's, your desire for God's presence. You want to be good employees at work. 
You want to be good parents and family members at home. You want to reach your neighbors. You want to be active in the church. You want to take care of your elderly parents, right? You want to do all these good things, and pretty soon, you're not seeking God's presence anymore, precisely because you're so consumed with doing good things for God. And so Elisha's request here is a reminder for us that what good is ministry if while doing that ministry, we don't get God himself. So in the first 10 verses, we've uh, seen a couple of things. We've seen stubborn commitment to calling. We've seen not getting sidetracked by a quest for glory. Uh, but maybe you're not convinced yet at this point that Elisha's request is necessarily all that honorable. We've all known or read stories of people who asked for more of God just so that they could get more of what they actually want, have we not? Right? That wouldn't be, he wouldn't be the only one if that's what his request was. Maybe Elisha was asking for more of God's spirit just so he could get more power, more fame, more attention, more importance, more status. So we need to look at the rest of the passage, verses 11 through 15, to look critically at this and examine our own hearts a little further in this way. So verse 11 is the translation. We're going to focus on the question in verse 14 as I read this last portion of the text, verses 11 through 15. Please follow along with me there and focus in on that question Elisha asks in verse 14. As they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. First observation here. Those who desire the Lord's presence above all else have a unique way of handling the loss of someone great. Elisha, it's not that Elisha wasn't sad. It's not that he doesn't grieve the loss of his master here. In verse 12, he takes his garment and tears it in two, right? There's profound sadness here. But Elisha doesn't grieve like someone without hope. He maintains his resolve, doesn't he? You can picture him in verse 13. His outer garment has fallen to the ground as he's torn it in two. We can picture him probably on his knees, weeping for a time, praying. And then, after some time, he gets up from his knees and stands to his feet. And he sees the cloak of Elijah laying on the ground. That that same cloak that Elijah pulled around him in the cave when he experienced the presence of the Lord. That same cloak that Elijah had subsequently put on Elisha's shoulders when he had called him to the ministry that he's about to assume. That cloak 
that symbolizes the office of prophet in Israel that says, this person wearing this cloak speaks the very words of God. He picked up the cloak and he walked deliberately back to the Jordan River. He doesn't grieve like one who has no hope. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. He doesn't conclude, well, it's all hopeless now that our hero is gone. He rises to his feet. He picks up the cloak and walks to the Jordan. And I just wonder, as you've been imagining that scene with me, if God has something for someone this morning in that scene. I think about the Laboos, who we just commissioned and sent off last week to Singapore. Right? They've been leading the way in many ways in our congregation in terms of missional living and in terms of reaching our neighbors. What do we do? Is God stirring in someone's heart this morning to maybe pick up the cloak that they left behind and take up the mantle and lead us in that the way the Laboos did before? I think about you juniors especially, but younger students in high school as the seniors are about to move on and leave behind the cloak, so to speak. And junior hires, as the eighth graders move up and seventh graders, you step into that place of being the oldest. I wonder who's going to pick up the cloak. Maybe for some of you, it's that you're grieving the fall from grace of your favorite pastor. Maybe for some of you, it's the death of somebody that you love and respected. And so maybe you came here with torn clothes this morning, metaphorically speaking, and you felt like you had no hope. Consider this morning if God might be calling you to stand to your feet, bend down to pick up the cloak and to walk back to the Jordan River. If it was about the Lord all along, it's still about the Lord. He's where he's always been, right? But if the loss of one person, whether it's because they moved away or because they walked away from the faith or because they died, if the loss of that one person ruins everything, then was it really about the Lord ever? Two more quick observations and then we'll be done. Those who desire the Lord's presence above all else prepare themselves to fulfill to fill available kingdom roles. They prepare themselves to fill available kingdom roles. So as Elisha matured in the faith, as he grew into his calling, a new outfit became appropriate in his life, did it not? He tears his clothes, and yes, it's because he's grieving the loss of Elijah, but it also made room for a new cloak. And I don't know that there's much more that needs to be expounded on that. We can just get straight to the heart of the matter for you and me. What old clothes do you and I need to tear off and put aside so that we can step into the cloak that God's asking us to pick up? If something just popped into your mind in your own heart, consider paying attention to that because it may be the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Maybe for some of you it's a sin that you've been stuck in for some time that you need to tear off and throw away so you can put on the new cloak. Maybe for some of you it's a time-wasting habit or a toxic relationship or a way of viewing yourself that doesn't quite align with how God views you in Scripture. Whatever it is, what better time than this morning to take off the old and put on the new? Final quick hit here. Those who desire the Lord's presence above all else value Him even over ministry success. Even over ministry success. Elisha's question In verse 14, it confirms our understanding of the request he made back in verse 9. 
in the moment of transition, in the moment where he's taking over for Elijah, he still desires the Lord's presence above all else, even ministry. We see it as he takes the cloak, as he walks back to the Jordan and he asks his question. And we think about all the questions he could have asked but didn't. He could have asked, where is the prophetic ministry of Elijah? And then struck the river with the cloak, right? He could have asked, um, sorry, I lost, I had a really good question he was going to ask. He could have asked, who's the real prophet in Israel? And struck the river with his cloak, right? He could have even asked, where's the power of Elijah? And struck the river with his cloak. But he didn't ask any of those things. What does he ask? Yes, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? For Elisha, if he was able to get all the power that Elijah had, but not the God behind that power, he didn't want the power. For Elisha, if he got the cloak that Elijah had, but not the God that gave meaning to the cloak, he didn't want the cloak. More than he wanted the ability Elijah had, he wanted the God Elijah knew. I'll say that one more time because it's really, really important. More than he wanted the ability Elijah had, he wanted the God that Elijah knew. That question, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, that's got to be a question that we ask ourselves frequently. When you go to the bookstore and pick up the latest Christian bestseller and open it up and start reading, the question isn't, what memorable quote can I tweet from this book, right? The question is, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, in this book? As you open up the Word to do your devotions in the morning, the question isn't, what can I learn about the Bible today? What trivia can I gain? The question is, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, in the pages of this text? As we gather for worship on a Sunday morning, the question to ask ourselves as we walk in isn't, I wonder if they're going to play any songs that I like this morning. The question is, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, in this place? Because in our reading, in our prayer time, in our worship, if we're not finding God himself there, then what are we really finding? That was how Elisha saw it. He wasn't asking, where's the power of Elijah? He was asking, where's the God of Elijah? And it quickly became clear to all that the God of Elijah was present in his protege and... The power of Elijah was resting on Elisha. Just like Joshua, who crossed over the Jordan River right here by parting it in two after the death of his mentor, Moses, so many years before, Elisha experiences the power of God because he's not seeking God for power. He's seeking God for God's own sake. So you understand by now why the big idea is this. Desire the Lord's presence above all else. Seek the Lord's presence above all else. In the ordering of of Elisha's desires, we see that he did desire the Lord's presence above all else. Do we? Here's a question. If the Lord, the God of Elijah, if the Holy Spirit didn't show up at North Sub on a Sunday morning, would any of us notice I hope we would. I hope that the absence of God's powerful, illuminating, regenerating, convicting spirit 
I'm hopeful that the absence of that would be so devastating and shocking to us that we'd hit our faces in devastation. But to be honest, sometimes I wonder that about myself and about us as a church. Another way of getting at it is this. As a pretty typical suburban evangelical church, are we doing church in such a way that if God didn't show up one week, we'd be sunk? To the extent that we come and go through the motions of singing songs and go through the motions of reading scriptures, and to the extent that I as a preacher go through the motions of preparing a sermon that is pretty much just copy and paste of the best things I can find from the best commentaries, why do we need God for any of that? We can do it on our own, right? To be honest, I wonder how much, I've been wondering this week how much I'm doing it on my own. And I wonder how much we're doing it on our own as a church. And I want to commit to you all this morning and ask you to hold me to it that I don't want to do that. I want you to be able to look into my eyes as I'm preaching to you on a Sunday morning. And I want you to be able to listen to my words that I'm saying from this pulpit. And I want you to know, be able to have confidence that the person preaching to you had a genuine encounter with the living God. If that isn't true of me, I have no business preaching to you. If that isn't true of us as a church, we really have no business doing church anymore. We're just playing church. Because we're not having genuine encounters with God then. And we become people who are just imitating others who have had genuine encounters with God. Like a parrot who just mimics what's being said by passers-by along the way. Let's not be content with just parroting people who have walked closely with God. Let's go get it for ourselves. Let me just address you as individuals before I close. Elijah knew that his time was about to come. God revealed that to him. But for most of us, we don't know that. We don't know when our time is coming. You don't know if today is the day that the Lord will call you home and you'll meet him face to face. And so we need to be prepared at any moment. And in order to be prepared, we need to understand that our great need at our dying hour is that the God of Elijah would be with us. That's our great need. It's the only need, really, because our performance reviews at work will be meaningless in that hour. Our bank account will be inconsequential. Our 401k will be a mist. It'll be a vapor. But if our great desire here on earth hasn't been for the God of Elijah, I'm afraid our experience will be unlike the experience Elijah had here. If your great desire on earth hasn't been for the God of Elijah for his presence above all else, your experience will be different from Elijah's. You'll meet the God who comes on a chariot of fire and a whirlwind, but you won't experience him like Elijah experienced him. You'll experience him the way the biblical writer said, who said, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We as church leaders here, we as North Suburban Church, we We want better for you. We want to spend eternity with you in heaven in the presence of God, 
getting our greatest desires fulfilled day after day after day after day for 10,000 years and then another million and then another billion. And our greatest desire then will be for God, for himself, not as a means to an end, but as the end for our whole lives. The question is, if that's going to be what we desire for all of eternity, why not go after it with everything we've got today? Let me pray. Lord, I'm so convicted this week of all the desires I have that are above my desire for you. And I'm even convicted and just floored by how even my desire for you is so often a desire as a means to an end, to something else that I really want more. Lord, you're so gracious with us as individuals and as a church. As we run after all sorts of things that aren't you, And Lord, we ask your forgiveness. We plead the blood of Jesus over our sin. And we ask that you would generate in our hearts a desire for you to taste and see your goodness above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.